It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 323 for the 30th of December, the penultimate day of 2012. This week, a little raspberry pie for your new year. So really, what's to like about Windows 8? And in short circuits, big trouble for Marvel Technologies. Does Instagram employ either an attorney or a public relations professional? And one highlight of 2012, George Takai. At a time when the trend in computers continues to accentuate more speed, more memory, larger hard drives, and more power, the little Raspberry Pi is going the other way. Smaller, less powerful, no hard drive. Wimpy, in other words. But these tiny computers, the basic model costs less than $50, but you do have to buy a few extra components if you want it to do anything, these tiny computers can fill a very specialized niche. The idea has been percolating for a while. Even Upton at the University of Cambridge Computer Laboratory envisioned a small and inexpensive computer for children back in 2006. What Upton had noticed was a drop in the number of university students in computer science programs. This was the result, he thought, of too few opportunities to tinker with hardware and with programming languages that are close to the hardware. In the 1990s, most computer science students had a background that involved hobby programming. But by 2006, most students had done no programming and might only have dabbled in a bit of setting up websites. Computers were expensive and parents were understandably reluctant to allow their kids to experiment on computers that might also hold the family's financial records. For the next two years, even designed several versions of what would eventually become the Raspberry Pi. Even now works as a chip architect at Broadcom, and the Raspberry Pi is now available using chips made by Broadcom. He says the project doesn't claim to have all the answers, and the Raspberry Pi won't fix all of the world's computing problems, but that it can serve as a catalyst. According to the project's website, we want to see cheap, accessible, programmable computers everywhere. We actively encourage other companies to clone what we're doing. We want to break the paradigm where, without spending hundreds of pounds on a PC, families can't use the Internet. We want owning a truly personal computer to be normal for children. We think 2012 is going to be a very exciting year. One of the primary concerns is keeping the price low. And to keep the price low, not very much is included. You can run the computer on four AA batteries, but you'll probably want a power supply. Either way, you'll have to buy whatever you want. Buy the computer, and you get the Raspberry Pi board. No power supply, no SD card, no case. Well, it doesn't need much of a case. It's about the size of a business card. And the Raspberry Pi even omits something that's been a part of computers since the 1980s, a real-time clock. That means you'll need to tell the computer the date and time every time you start it up. Or if you connect your Raspberry Pi to the Internet, you can use a time service to set the time. The expectation is that a non-network connected unit will have their clocks updated manually at startup. Adding an RTC, a real-time clock, is surprisingly expensive both in terms of dollars, or in this case pounds, and in terms of space. 
You can add one yourself, the Raspberry Pi website notes, using the GPIO pins if you're after an interesting electronics project. Two models exist, A and B. Model A has 256 megabytes of RAM and one USB port, no network connection. Model B has 512 megabytes of RAM, two USB ports, and an Ethernet port for network. Nothing can be expanded, enhanced, or added to. There's not even an on-off switch. When you want to turn it on, you plug it in. Turn it off, reverse the process. The Raspberry Pi boots from a secure digital or SD card, which is required, but a USB hard drive can be installed and it can be used after the boot process is complete. It doesn't run Windows, but you probably already suspected that. Fedora, Debian, and Arch Linux are supported right now. Other Linux distributions will be added. The most popular Linux distribution, Ubuntu, doesn't run well on the ARM processor, which is used by the Raspberry Pi. It may be added, but not for a while. So if you're looking for an interesting project in 2013, you might consider buying a Raspberry Pi. Although it's a British product, there are now distributors in the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere throughout the world. Some offer cases and other handy components, including power supplies that you can buy right along with the device. You can even buy SD cards that have been loaded with the operating system. Sellers are easy to find. Just use Google or Bing. So as we closed in on the end of the year, I began to wonder, what's to like about Windows 8? Although some of the pundits are finally beginning to realize that Windows 8 does make considerable improvements in the user experience, far too many still see nothing but inconvenience for users. The gloom and doom brigade will undoubtedly continue to chant their dirges, but I can't find much to agree with them on. That's not to say that Windows 8 is perfect. In fact, I found some things I don't like, but surprisingly, most of those involve Windows 8 on a tablet, where it's supposed to be the best. Where Windows 8 is supposed to be a disaster, desktops and notebooks, I've really found little to complain about, and a lot of things that I like. Here's an example. Probably just about everyone has had a Windows update fail, and the recovery process, although it's not particularly complicated, can be time-consuming. Shortly before Christmas, three updates failed to install. Windows 8 is smart enough to retry a couple of times and then stop. The configuration that occurs during shutdown would get to 15%. Stall, retry, stall, and then reboot. The startup configuration process would also get to 15%. Stall, retry, and then reboot without trying again. The usual process when an update fails is to download the installer application from Microsoft's website and perform the installation manually. I tried that, but the process still failed on reboot. Then I noticed this text in the update history pane of the control panel. Troubleshoot problems with installing updates. That led to what is pretty much a standard question and answer session from Microsoft, but there was a new feature offered. Click to open the Windows Update Troubleshooter, it said. So I clicked. Less than a minute later, the troubleshooter claimed to have fixed the problem. I ran the update process again. The updates installed without a problem. Other improvements include the delete key. When you delete files, you'll no longer be asked if you really want to delete them. After selecting one or more files and pressing delete, you would be prompted in earlier versions of Windows to confirm that deletion. 
Why? You could always recover any accidentally deleted file from the recycle bin. The additional question was little more than an annoyance. You will have to retrain a bit of muscle memory, though. And if you accidentally delete a file that you want, you can still restore it from the recycle bin. And then there's Windows Search. This is the feature that makes the old Start menu irrelevant. I still pin a lot of applications to the taskbar on the desktop, but if I didn't, the search function would make it possible for me to start programs faster than I could with the Start menu. Instead of click, 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 click with a mouse down through the menus, starting an application requires no more than pressing the Windows key, typing the first few letter of the application's name, and then pressing Enter. Anytime you can do something without using the mouse, you'll find that you're able to do it faster. I like faster. Then there's easy login. Tablet computers have on-screen keyboards, but these are none too easy to use if you have a complex password. For example, logging in with the soft keyboard and my password, I'd have to do the following. Press the shift key, press a key, press the shift key, press a key, press the shift key, press a key, press three more keys, press the number shift, press a key, press four more keys, and then press enter. Wow, that would be cumbersome. Well, instead, I set up a picture logon. When Windows starts on the tablet, it shows me a picture. I draw three shapes. These could be lines or circles or arcs or rectangles. And I draw them in specific locations on the screen. As soon as I do that, the system unlocks. For computers with true keyboards, typing the password is faster. But for tablets, the picture passwords are quick and easy. I consider ink and character recognition to be improvements in Windows 8, although they're not technically new with Windows 8. The ability to draw on ink-enabled applications is better, and the keyboard function has a built-in character recognition capability that's surprisingly fast and accurate. Oh, and here's a big one. Devices and drivers. At installation time, Windows 8 either already has or can find device drivers for just about any hardware you have. For example, I needed to purchase a new printer when the old printer gave up in mid-December. The printer can be installed wirelessly, as a wired network printer, or as a USB printer. I selected the wired network option and plugged it into the router. When Windows noticed the new printer on the network, it offered to install any needed device drivers and to make the printer the default. I was surprised that I didn't even need to specify the IP address for the printer. But then I installed the printer on a Windows 7 computer over the network, and as expected, I did need to know the printer's IP address. The printer manufacturer's software reached out to the printer and set a static IP address. This made the printer available to the Windows 7 computer, but then it was unavailable to the Windows 8 machines. But all I needed to do was delete the printer and allow Windows to find it again and say, Oh, you've got a new printer? Would you like me to set that up as your default device? Again, it set things up using the IP address instead of the MAC address. You already know I like speed. In fact, I think most people who use computers would prefer not to sit around waiting for the computer to do something. I've mentioned speed several times before, boot times particularly. Windows 8, in fact, rivals Linux in start times. On tablets, netbooks, and PCs that have solid-state boot drives, Windows goes from a power-off state to ready in less than a minute. Depending on the computer, it could be far less than a minute. If the computer is just sleeping, it'll be ready in 10 seconds or less. On the Metro or Modern interface, there are live tiles. At first, I thought those constantly changing live tiles were silly, but they're beginning to grow on me. I often have a notebook computer running beside the desktop system. If I'm not actively using the notebook for work, 
I display the start screen and the live tiles provide quick updates for various services, and I wouldn't miss them if they weren't there. But the presence isn't as silly as I once thought. Other improvements? Refresh and reset. I haven't had to use either of these features yet, but they represent a new way to fix a computer when it begins to slow down because something has happened. Refresh reverts all settings to their defaults and dumps any apps that you haven't synchronized via your Outlook.com account. Note that I said apps, the programs that run in the modern interface. Applications such as Word or Excel will remain. Reset is what you'll need when you're ready to sell, trade, or hand down your computer and you want to make sure that all of your personally identifiable information has been removed. And you can synchronize settings across computers. This is something new for Microsoft, and I really like the ability to specify which settings I'd like to have replicated on other machines. When settings are synchronized, I have to set them only once on a single computer, and they automatically show up on all the computers that I use. There are improved system functions, from copying files to using the task manager. Nearly every system function has been improved in some way or another. Even the performance monitor has been improved to include additional information on devices such as Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. In short, and despite what some of the short-sighted pundits would have you believe, the Windows 8 interface really is an improvement over Windows 7. Windows 7 was a pretty darn tough act to follow because it took a seriously broken operating system, Vista, and made it work. It made it work well. Windows 8 starts with the reliability of Windows 7 and creates an interface that, if given just a few hours and an unbiased mind, will probably convince you that it's a winner. So you're thinking that I believe Windows 8 is perfect. Well, not exactly. Desktop applications on a tablet are challenging because on a high-resolution screen, menus are tiny. I constantly click or tap on the wrong menu item when using applications such as Firefox. What's needed is a way for legacy applications to display larger menus so the tapping becomes unambiguous. Although the on-screen keyboard is a good idea, the implementation isn't particularly good in Windows 8. The on-screen keyboard lives in the tray where it can be opened with a single tap, and it opens automatically when modern apps need text input. But the keyboard has no Alt key, and the Alt key is important. Now, Microsoft does provide another on-screen keyboard, but you have to call it up from the start screen or pin it to the taskbar. This keyboard includes an alt key. In fact, it has two of them. But the keyboard is tiny. In other words, the faux keyboards really need more work. And by the way, as I've said for a year, tablets will not replace a desktop or a notebook. I'm delighted that I can run Word or Excel on a tablet so that I can view documents created in these programs and make small changes to them. Even with the keyboard that my tablet has, it's a real keyboard. I certainly wouldn't want to spend all day editing a document in Word or writing messages in Outlook or writing formulas in Excel. Tablets are all about flexibility and portability. They are not about power computing. What Windows 8 gives me is the ability to take a small, or in the event of a smartphone, very small device with me and use an interface that's familiar. It's as close as anyone has come so far to a one-size-fits-all interface, and even though it's definitely not perfect, it's a big step in the right direction. Well, anyway, here's the good news. That's the last you're going to hear from me about Windows 8 this year.
It short circuits some big trouble for Marvell Technologies. Chip manufacturer Marvell Technologies manufactures high performance processors, broadband and wireless transceivers, storage controllers, and light emitting diode processors. It's also just been found guilty of patent infringement and ordered to pay $1,170,000,000. And it could get worse. A jury in Pittsburgh reached a unanimous verdict this week on the case brought by Carnegie Mellon University. Additionally, the jury found that the infringement was willful, and that would allow the judge to triple the jury's verdict. That would be more than $3,500,000,000. The patents at the center of this case are for chips that are used in hard disk drives. Their designs make it possible for data to be read more accurately, particularly on those high-speed, high-performance drives. The company has manufactured millions of such chips. The company says it will appeal to U.S. District Court in Pittsburgh, and if it fails to have the verdict nullified there, Marvell attorneys will take the case to U.S. Federal Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington. The university says the technologies were developed and patented by Jose Mora, a professor at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, and Alexander Kafsik, at the time a Ph.D. student. Kafsik is currently a professor at the University of Hawaii. Marvell denies patent infringement and also claims the patents were worthless because similar systems had been developed previously. Post-trial hearings are scheduled for May, but the company's stock price has already been damaged. Share prices dropped 10% overnight. myself wondering if Instagram employs either an attorney or a public relations professional. That was the question that was on my mind when the online photo sharing operation announced that it intended to sell users' photos without their knowledge or consent, and also that they would not compensate users in any way. A large amount of fecal matter came into contact with the rotary air distribution device almost immediately. If Instagram employs either an attorney or a PR professional, I would hope that both of them raised serious concerns about this idiotic plan. Instagram started backpedaling almost immediately, saying that they really didn't mean that they were going to sell your photographs. Co-founder Kevin Systrom even posted a message that said, Instagram has no intention of selling your photos. Some users remain unconvinced. The photo sharing service is free. Currently, it has no way to monetize the service, and that's something that Systrom needs to address. Systrom's statement and later comments by Instagram's Meredith Chin both seem to indicate that the plan has not really been canceled, but only delayed, put on hold, temporarily suspended. In other words, it appears that this plan, or perhaps the word scheme might be more appropriate, will simply be repackaged later, spun and apparently Systrom thinks that he can find some words that'll make palatable the fact that the operation will require users to sign over permission for Instagram to use photos in any way the company deems accessible and without any compensation whatsoever. After apologizing for riling users, Systrom wrote about plans to provide content sharing of some sort with advertisers. In other words, we're sorry that we frightened you, and the next time we'll be more cautious about the words we use. So here's my opinion. At this time, I don't have an Instagram account, and I have no plans to create one. If you're concerned about retaining all of the rights to your own photographs, you might want to review WikiHow's description of how to delete your Instagram account and get your photos back. 
You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Here's a high note of 2012, George Takai. If you're a fan of the original Star Trek, you'll recognize the name George Takai. In 2012, this 75-year-old actor became a sensation on the internet because of his regular posts to Facebook. Best known for his role as Hikaru Sulu, the helmsman of the USS Enterprise in the television series Star Trek, he also portrayed the character in six Star Trek feature films and an episode of Star Trek Voyager. His posts to Facebook are ones that I often share with others. Takai's proponent of gay rights and human rights, active in state and local politics, as well as continuing his acting career. He has won several awards and accolades in his work on human rights, so, in other words, this is the kind of guy I admire. According to Wikipedia, and I quote, In October 2005, Takai revealed in an issue of Frontiers magazine that he's gay and has been in a committed relationship with his partner, Brad Altman, for 18 years. Takai went on to explain, LGBT people are masculine, feminine, caring, and abusive. We're just like straight people in terms of our outward appearance and our behavior. The only difference is that we're oriented to people of our own gender. Takai was born in Los Angeles, and during one of the more shameful periods of American history, the Takai family was forced to live in horse stables at Santa Anita Park, then sent to the Rover War Relocation Center for internment in Arkansas. They were later transferred to the Tula Lake War Relocation Center in California, where they remained until the end of World War II. You can forgive him for being bitter, but he's not. Late in 2012, Takai released an e-book called Oh My, There Goes the Internet. And Amazon described it this way. Read about George Takai's meteoric rise and dominance of the Internet in Oh My, There Goes the Internet, published, of course, in electronic format. In this groundbreaking, hilarious, and informative book, Takai recounts his experiences on platforms such as Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, where fans and pundits have crowned him king. He muses about everything from the nature of viral sharing to the taming of the internet trolls to why Yoda, Bacon, and Cats are such popular memes. Takai isn't afraid to tell it like he sees it and to engage the reader just as he does his legions of fans. Well, that might be a bit of hyperbole. Quite a bit, actually. But I'm enjoying the book. I downloaded it on Christmas Eve. I'll finish it before New Year's Day. So, if you're seeking something to read on a new Kindle or a new tablet or some other device, this would be a good choice. And if you have a Facebook account and you haven't yet liked George Takai, maybe you should. And from TechBiter Worldwide, Happy New Year! Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.